with you. If I haven't met you before, my name's Tim. I'd love to meet you after the service when we have lunch together. So that'd be good. Uh, before I start, I just want to let you know about something that our growth groups have actually been doing. We um, have small groups that meet in the middle of the week and read the Bible together and pray. And this term, we've started doing this thing called 311. And the idea is we pray for three friends who don't know Jesus once a, once a day for one minute. So what we've got is we've got these bookmarks, 311, easy to remember, it's right there. And on the back, you can write down your three friends that you want to be praying for. I've had mine in my Bible for uh, a few weeks now, and it's certainly helped me keep praying for these people who uh, I would love for them to come to know Jesus. I have some of these bookmarks spare. I'm going to put them on the table up the back next to the sound guys after the service. So feel free to grab one, chuck it in your Bible, chuck it in whatever book you're reading uh, and be praying that our friends, our family, our neighbours would come to know Jesus. Well, how about I pray now, not just for those we know, uh, but for our time together as God speaks to us through His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the salvation that we have in Jesus we pray that we would let that salvation be known to our friends, to our family, to our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, to our whole world. We pray that your gospel would be made known throughout Sydney and Australia and that people would come to accept Jesus as Lord. And Father, now as we dig into these chapters of Exodus that seem quite far from Jesus, please speak to us now. Show us your glory and the glory of your Son through these. Remind us of the goodness of our salvation and shape and change our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but as a kid, one phrase that I would hate to hear from my parents, and sometimes my mum watches online later and say, Mum, I'm sorry, it was something along the lines of, Do it because I told you. Do it because I said so. Why do I have to do this? Because I'm the boss and I'm in charge and you're the kid and you have to do it. I used to hate that. Go clean your room. Why? Because I told you to. Go mow the lawn. But mum, I want it. No, go now because I'm your mum. I hated that. Because what it really meant was I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. I'm not the boss. I have to obey. Now, the great irony is I do find myself saying that to my kids now too. You know, you're just like, you're tired and you're frustrated and you could sit there and explain to a kid who's not going to understand all the reasons why or you could just say, do it because I told you to. But, I, like, you get it, right? It's so frustrating to be under someone's authority and just have them throw it around on you. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like it. We all want to be free to do whatever we want. And I think this is generally true of all people, right? Uh, It's not just me as a kid. Uh, I think we all don't like being bossed around by our parents, by our employers, by the government. Have you guys heard of the um, uh, sovereign citizen movement? These people who uh, think they can just kind of say some magic words and all of a sudden they, they don't have to live under government rule unless they consent to it. They want to be free of any demands on their life from anyone that isn't them. They they don't want anyone to tell them what to do. And I think, you know, we're willing to do what we're told. Like, we still do it. But 
we don't want to. Like, deep down, we don't want to. Our boss says, you know, get that thing done by then. And you're just like, yeah, I will, but I don't want to. Now, when it comes to God, I think it's the exact same. We, we don't want to obey Him either. We still do, but deep down inside of us, we don't want to. Why does God get to tell us how to live our lives? Why does He get to have the same authority as our parents when we're kids, as our boss, as the government? Why does He get to do that? Now, that's Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, verse 1. We saw this last week. It'd be super helpful to have your Bibles open. We're going to be flicking through a couple of chapters in Exodus, mostly 7 to 10, but let me show you from Exodus chapter 5. Uh, I'll start from verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they said, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. Like, I get Pharaoh there. I don't want to do what I'm told either. Who is this God that he has authority over Pharaoh? Pharaoh doesn't know who he is. He's just some deity of some people who he's dominated and enslaved. Why should he listen to that God? Why should Pharaoh do what he says? Well, God won't stand for that kind of rebellion. God determines to show Pharaoh exactly who he is. And that's what we'll see today in the plagues. God's message to Pharaoh, this is who I am. You want to know who I am? You don't know who I am? Let me show you. And he shows Pharaoh with these massive calamities, these plagues that bring civilization to its knees... Now, like I said, we're covering a lot of chapters here, 7 to 10-ish. We're not going to go through every single little detail in every verse, otherwise lunch will be cold by the time we get to it. We're going to kind of take a bird's eye view of the whole thing, dipping down into detail as we go. But the idea is, as we dip down, I want to show you what God is saying about Himself through the plagues, what we learn about Pharaoh and his heart through the plagues. So that's what we're going to do. We'll start with Pharaoh's heart. Last week, we saw Pharaoh and Yahweh preparing to do battle together. If you missed that, you can jump back online and you can find uh, last week's sermon and check that out. But, you know, Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh that I should obey? Yahweh says, well, let me tell you. And they're preparing for battle. They're preparing for war. Yahweh will show Pharaoh exactly who he's messing with. And the reason why this war is happening is because Pharaoh wants to be his own boss. Pharaoh doesn't want to have anyone tell him what to do. Like... Not even a god, right? So, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, king of this huge, massive, mighty, powerful nation, no one on earth gets to tell him what to do, right? But also, in Pharaoh's opinion, no one in heaven gets to tell him what to do. He wants to be in charge. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I am Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I do what I want. And as Yahweh brings these plagues, which we just saw uh, beautifully illustrated before, uh, both drawing and through acting, as all these plagues come upon Pharaoh, as Yahweh shows Pharaoh who he is, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, Pharaoh 
doesn't bend the knee, doesn't submit to Yahweh's authority. He continues to rebel more and more and more. In face of all the evidence that he should listen to God, he just doesn't. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. After the plague of the frogs and the flies and the hail, we are told Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Now, what does that mean, to harden your heart? Think of it like a calloused heart. What what are calluses? When, When you work hard, you get calluses on your hand, or when you play guitar, you get calluses on your fingertips. What do they do? It thickens the skin to protect you, to protect your body, so that it can handle the hard work. But but a consequence of that is you lose feeling. The thickened skin makes your hands dull to sensation. It becomes less sensitive. And so Pharaoh's heart, becoming hard, becoming calloused, is less sensitive to the Word of God. So Pharaoh continues to defy God. God keeps coming to him and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh is hard to Yahweh. In the face of overwhelming demonstrations of might and power and absolute control over the lands of Egypt, Pharaoh is calloused and hard. What's really interesting, though, is the Egyptians get it before Pharaoh. Look at chapter 10, verse 7 with me. So, plague after plague after plague, in the eighth plague, the plague of the locusts, as Moses warns Pharaoh that the locusts are coming, chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship Yahweh their God. Do you not realise that Egypt is ruined? They are begging Pharaoh to let Israel go. They are begging Pharaoh to just make it stop. The the river has been destroyed. Their livestock, their crops, destroyed. And and now now Moses is saying, locusts are going to come and take out the rest of the crops that weren't yet destroyed. They're like, Pharaoh, you have to make this stop. This is madness. Pharaoh's like slowly descending into madness. His actions stop making sense. He's like a toddler who is told what to do and he just desperately doesn't want to do it. He's chucking a tantrum. Given all of Pharaoh's power, he doesn't want to bow the knee to anyone. He wants to make his own decisions. He claims the right to live however he likes. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? That sounds like me. That sounds like us, that's our heart. We have the same heart as Pharaoh. We all want to be our own boss. We all want to have the freedom to live however we want. You know, that's why we complain about micromanagers, overbearing parents, tax. We want to do whatever we want. We want to live however we want. You you hear this and you get this in like all the marketing to buy a franchise or pyramid schemes or owning your own business. What's, what's the most appealing part of that whole thing? Isn't it be your own boss, set your own hours, work a little bit, go play golf for the rest of the week? Or like every single car ad you've ever watched, what's the appeal of that they're trying, what's the thing they're trying to appeal to in your life? Buy this car and you'll be free. 
You can do whatever you want with this car. That same attitude extends to God. We want to be free to do what we want, whenever we want. We don't want anyone to make any demands on our lives. We don't want God to make any demands on our lives. That's our heart. Now, like I said earlier, we, we do submit to authority often, but deep down, we don't want to. I know people who have explored Christianity over weeks, months, even years, dive deep into what the message of the gospel is, who Jesus is, how he is Lord. They believe that he died for them. They believe that he rose again. They know the right response is to trust in him for their salvation. But they can't bring themselves to do it because they do not want to submit to a Lord. They do not want to give up their freedom in their life. How deeply tragic. They know what's at stake and they won't give it up because they don't like being told how to live. Now, if you're with us and you're exploring Jesus, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. And I'm going to explain a little bit later why actually coming to know Jesus is so wonderful. But don't let that be you. Don't stop, that. Don't stop trusting in Jesus because you don't want to listen to him. But what about those of us who already follow Jesus? Many of us here already have bowed the knee to Jesus. We've already said, yes, God, I will live under your authority. The, the problem is, because of our sinful heart, we don't give ourselves completely over to God. We don't let Him have complete control over our whole lives. So let me paint you a picture. And as I do this, pay attention to your own heart. How does your heart respond to this message? Imagine you hear a message from God. It's clear, undeniably from God. Imagine, I don't know how you received it, but imagine you get this message from God and this is what he says. He says, pack up your house and your family. Leave your job and move to Kempsey on the mid-north coast. Five five hours away. A very low socioeconomic area. An area with deep, desperate gospel need. An area where career prospects for many of us are just non-existent. Where ministry will be hard. And God says, go there and serve me. What does your heart say? I know what my heart says. Deep down, like, there's hesitancy. There's a sinking feeling. Really? You're calling me to this? I don't know if I want to do that. What if he said... You know, go overseas, go to deepest, darkest Africa, go to tribes that don't know any of the comforts of your life, no electricity, no internet. How does that make you feel? I have to leave my house? I worked really hard for that. I have to leave my family behind? I love my family. I have to leave my comfortable, well-paying job, my friendships, my conveniences... Really? I don't know if I want to do that. I know that's what many of us are feeling because that's what I feel. That's how my heart responds. Now, I know some of us here would actually jump at those situations and I give thanks for you. That's so wonderful that this isn't the temptation of many of us. You have other temptations. But for many of us, it's, do I really need to obey God? Do I really need to do that? 
I don't want anyone to make any demands on my life. I don't want to give up anything. My heart, your heart, has the same problem as Pharaoh's. We all want to rule our own lives. Our hearts might not be as hard as Pharaoh's, they might be, but we still have the same disease. And so the warning here is this, do not let your heart become hardened. Do not go down the path of Pharaoh. He he descended into the madness of, I will never give in to God. Instead, we need to open our hearts to God, to listen to what He's saying to us, which means you can't fall asleep for the rest of the morning, I'm sorry. God is speaking to us and, and making demands on our life and we need to be open to that. Yahweh will not stand for a rebellious heart and so He will determine to show Pharaoh who He is and He will show us who He is. But let's keep moving on. We've seen Pharaoh's rebellious heart is the same as our rebellious heart. When Pharaoh rebels, Yahweh responds. Let me show you from the very start of Exodus chapter 7. This is before the first plague. This kind of sets us up. So Exodus chapter 7, let me read the first four verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Yahweh's battle plan is this. He is going to lay a mighty hand of judgment on Egypt and draw out Israel. So the old one too. Judgment, draw out. That's his plan. But the most important bit is actually in verse 5. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israelites and bring the Israelites out of it. Why is he stretching his hand out? Why is he drawing Israel out? Well, because he's letting Pharaoh know exactly who he is. The plagues are Yahweh's self-revelation. Yahweh is saying, this is who I am in each of the plagues. Yahweh won't just show Pharaoh, he'll show the whole world. Through the plagues, Yahweh speaks to everybody, even us today. Yahweh is telling us who he is. That's why seven times throughout chapters 7 to 10, Yahweh says, I'm doing this so that you might know who I am. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. We had this read earlier. This is one of the most complete statements from Yahweh. I might read from verse 14. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Yahweh is telling the whole world who he is. He's telling the whole ancient world, he's telling us today, this is who I am. So who is he? What's he saying? What does Yahweh communicate through these plagues? Let me show you four things. First, 
Yahweh is the creator. Yahweh has complete control over his creation because he made it. He's the one that holds it all together. And he shows this because the plagues target key sectors of Egyptian life, things that they desperately rely on, and, and he just collapses them out from underneath Egypt. The plague of blood, for example. Think about that. The Nile is essentially the lifeblood of Egypt. Without the Nile, what is Egypt? A desert wasteland. The Egyptians relied on the Nile for their water, for their livestock, for their um, crops. Its floodplains were full of rich, fertile soil, so without the Nile flooding each year, there, there would be no crops. But Yahweh takes away its ability to give it life, fills it with blood instead of water. That, that blood can't feed people, that, that blood can't feed their crops, that blood can't be drunk to restore and replenish and quench thirst. Yahweh is saying, I'm the one who brings life to the land of Egypt, not the Nile. I'm in control of the Nile and I can take it away because all of creation is my domain. Yahweh is the creator. In further plagues, he destroys livestock and crops, other incredibly important parts of Egyptian life. Yahweh is creator. He gives those things, he takes them away. Yahweh's creator. Second, Yahweh's the holy judge. We saw this, chapter 7, verse 4, Yahweh will stretch out a mighty hand of judgment on Pharaoh. Yahweh's judgment here in the plagues is to undo creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. He turned chaos into order, nothingness into something dust into life. Yet in the plagues, we see a reverse. Water no longer brings life. The animals no longer serve humanity. Instead, armies of them kind of take over the whole land. Light turns to darkness. Life returns to dust. Creation falls back into chaos all around Pharaoh. That's Yahweh's judgment. As Lord of all creation, He uncreates. We also see Yahweh's judgment in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We've already seen that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He does that to himself. He desensitizes himself to God's word. But Yahweh hardens it as well. Yahweh shows that his power doesn't just extend over the Nile or, or the animals or the plants. No, it extends to the human heart. God's power is over the very human heart and he himself hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will continue to reject him so that God might continue to show who he is. Yahweh's judgment is to give Pharaoh exactly what he wants. Pharaoh says, God, I don't want a thing to do with you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to obey you. I don't want anything to do with you. And Yahweh says, so be it. Sure thing. You don't have to listen to me. My judgment will still come, but you, don't, you won't listen to me. That's okay. You see, in all this, Pharaoh is still responsible for his rejection of Yahweh. Pharaoh does harden his own heart. We've seen that. He does that himself. He is responsible for his actions. Yet, God's sovereignty is such that he also hardens Pharaoh's heart. So that Pharaoh freely chooses what Yahweh gives him over to. Both are true. Both are completely responsible because Yahweh is the holy judge. 
So we've seen Yahweh's creator, he's a holy judge. Thirdly, Yahweh's the gracious saviour. Did you notice how some of those plagues didn't affect Israel? They were spared, those plagues. The flies don't enter the land of Goshen, where Israel live. Israel's livestock aren't killed. The hail doesn't beat down on Israel's crops. Israel live in light, while Egypt live in darkness for three days. The thing is, though, Israel haven't been that great. Israel have done nothing to deserve this preservation. Nothing whatsoever. They've complained. They've not trusted Yahweh. They've even called themselves Pharaoh's servants after they heard that Yahweh would bring them out of Egypt. They have chosen Pharaoh over Yahweh. Israel are not good, but Yahweh is still merciful. He chooses to graciously protect them because he is a gracious saviour. Yahweh's creator, holy judge, gracious saviour, all that sums up to Yahweh is the one true God. The might of Pharaoh is nothing compared to God. The Egyptian gods, they're nowhere to be found in the book of Exodus. Why? Because they're nothing. They hold no power. There is only one Lord of all, Yahweh. His domain is all of creation. He is judge. He is saviour. He is the one true God. These plagues are signs. The signs point to Yahweh and say, He is the Lord of these plagues. He is the Lord of all things. He is the one true God. And for more than a thousand years, the plagues and the exodus were God's sign for who He is. A God of judgment, a God of salvation, the creator of all, the one true God. For a thousand years, Israel and the nations looked to that to see who Yahweh is. Until 2,000 years ago when we're given a new sign. In Mark 8, Jesus begins to speak of these signs. So keep your finger in Exodus and come with me to Mark chapter 8. We had it read for us earlier. Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has confessed, you are the Christ. You are the King, the one who will come and liberate Israel and reign. And then this is what Jesus says, Mark 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about these things. Jesus says, there's a new sign, I will suffer, I will be rejected by Israel, I will be rejected by those who have hard hearts to God and I will be killed. But these are new signs and He'll rise again as the ultimate sign. The cross, the resurrection, they're the signs for us today that point us to who God is. Who is God? He's the man, Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose to life for our justification. These are our signs. They tell us who God is. He has complete power over life and death. He is judge of the whole universe. He he has the power to defeat the evil one. He is the saviour. Jesus is the one true God. 
The plagues were for Pharaoh, Egypt and the world. The cross and the resurrection are for us. They tell us who Jesus is. And instead of hardening our hearts and rejecting Jesus, we ought to have soft hearts to Jesus and accept him. We ought to see him for who he is. He is God. And so what does all this mean for us? Jesus is the one true God. So what? We listen to him. What does he say? Well, he makes some pretty serious demands on our life. His demands on our life are absolute. We don't have the luxury of personal autonomy anymore. We don't get to do whatever we want. God is God and we are not. Jesus is God and we are not. We cannot continue to live however we like without any thought to God. But God doesn't simply say, I'm God, do what I say. Right? That's what I say to my kids. That's not all that God says. He has more. He saves Israel. And then before he gives the Ten Commandments, he doesn't say, I'm the God who destroyed Egypt with plagues. He says, no, I'm the God who rescued you out of Egypt. Therefore, live this way. And it's the same for us today. Jesus says, I'm the one who died for you, who loves you so desperately that I'd go to the cross for you. I'm the one who was raised back to life so that you might be saved. Now live this way. Jesus faced God's judgment so we don't have to. Jesus died so that we could live. We let God rule our lives, not simply because he's God, but also because he's our saviour. Out of thankfulness and gratitude, we give our lives over. But make no mistake, his demands are still absolute. God's demand on our life is our whole life and nothing less. A pastor I once knew hosted a debate for a bunch of teenagers and the topic was this. Unless someone is willing to give up their ambitions, hopes and dreams, they cannot be a Christian. Unless someone is willing to give up their ambitions, hopes and dreams, they cannot be a Christian. The pastor gave that to the room, there was teenagers, there was leaders there uh, and they said, uh, choose which side that you agree with and then we'll debate that and argue that. All teenagers bar one said it was false. All leaders bar one said it was true. And then this pastor had a conversation with that one leader who said it was false and he quickly swapped sides and decided it was true. What was really interesting is when the teams came to give their arguments, the team that said, no, no, we don't have to give up our dreams, hopes and ambitions, said things like, well, well, where do our hopes and dreams and ambitions come from? They come from God. He's given them to us. And so he wants us to achieve them and flourish within them. So, of course, we don't have to give them up. The other team, their arguments were pretty much scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture saying God's demands on our life are absolute. The main verse that this was argued from is in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. So have a look at it with me. This is what Jesus says. He says, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be raised back to new life. And then he says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Jesus says, you must give your entire life to me. Not 
be willing to do it. No, but do it. Give your life to me. You must deny your dreams, your hopes, your ambitions. You have to give them up. You can no longer hold to those things that you had before you knew Jesus. You can't do it. There is only room for one Lord in the kingdom of God, and that's Jesus. We cannot be the boss of our own lives and follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. Jesus demands our whole life. It belongs to him completely. No part of our lives remain untouched by Jesus. You see, when we invite Jesus into our lives, it's like inviting him to live in our house. And, and, and our, our life is our whole house. And Jesus says, this house, it's now mine. So we can't keep the keys to some of the rooms and say, look, you can have the living room, you can have the kitchen, but that room there, that's my room. You can't touch it. We don't get to do that. Because Jesus' plan for our life and for our house is, is a complete renovation. He's going to be knocking out walls. He's going to be expanding spaces, changing room, adding a story here, moving things over there. How can we hold on to part of our life if he's going to do a full rebuild? But remember, Jesus isn't just the one true God. He's a loving, gracious saviour. He loves us. He wants good for us. And so those things that he wants for our life, they are desperately good for us. It means that whatever we give up, we won't regret it. In eternity, we won't regret whatever we give up. But it does mean we have to be prepared to give up the things that we hold closely. One thing that I think uh, uh, people of our democratic, upper middle class, one thing that we desire is comfort and security. We want to have a nice house. We want to have a good job. We want our kids to go to a good school where they'll be pushed academically, where they can have as many advantages and opportunities as possible so that they too can grow up and have a nice house and a good job. That's the upper middle class dream. Jesus says, you can't have that. You must die to that dream. I have a new dream for you. My dream for you is to make my name known in all the earth. He might say, move to Kempsey. He might say, move to Pakistan. Will you go? He definitely says, gather with my people every single Sunday in a community. Be open to my word. Love, encourage one another. Will you do it? He says, be generous with what I've given you. Will you give generously? Will you give so generously that you'll miss out on that luxury that everyone else has? Will you sacrifice the upward career path so that you might work less hours, so that you might love and care for your family? So that you might invest in them? You know, the main gospel ministry of every single parent is their kids. Will you devote yourself to that ministry, giving up whatever else that means? Will you connect with your friends so that you might build relationships with them in which you can share Jesus? You see, we can't have that upper middle class dream and be disciples. Now, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you can't have the nice house, the nice car, the nice job. I'm saying those can't be your ambitions. That can't be your dream. That can't be your desire. That can't be the thing you're working for. God is a good God. He gives wonderful gifts to his people. He gives us these things. They just can't be our dreams. We need to work 
at putting those dreams to death so that our ambitions, our dreams might be Jesus. That we might seek to see him known and him saved. Sorry, not him saved. We might seek to have him known so that others might be saved. That's the new ambition for our life. That's what Jesus gives us. He's the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all creation, the Lord of judgment, the Lord of salvation, the one true God. Will you live like it? Now, as I finish, let me confess to you. Those things have often been my ambition. Those things have often been my dream. I want a nice house. I want a comfortable life. I want my kids to grow up with the best. I want them to go to a nice school. I want them to have security and peace and quiet. I want them to have friends who they can enjoy and are like them. And I want all those things too. Constantly. I need to fight against those things. I need to come before Jesus and say, Jesus, these are my dreams and ambitions. Would you take them away from me? Would you replace them with yours? So that even if I get to enjoy many of these things, they will not consume my life. But that I would be utterly devoted to you. Here's the good news though. Even when I fail, which is quite regularly, more often than I'd like to admit, even when I fail and my heart longs for things that I shouldn't, I know I have a saviour in Jesus who in Mark 8 says he's going to the cross so that I might live, that I might have a way of salvation, that I might come out from under the judgment that Pharaoh faces and be with my Lord forever. Praise Jesus who rescues us. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through Exodus and Mark today. Thank you that you aren't a God who is silent and aloof, but who is in our history working to show us who you are. Father, we must acknowledge that you are God and we are not. But we are so thankful that you are a God who loves us and who saves us. Help us now to give our lives to you in complete and utter devotion because of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.